can be seated. We are continuing our series this morning on the gospel of God rooted in Romans chapter 1. And for the last several weeks, we've been reflecting on the results of the gospel. And the basic insight here is that the results of the gospel are transformed lives. You and me who have been changed by the power of God and who live a qualitatively different life in the power of the spirit. These are, we are, the results of the gospel. And in particular, of the last two weeks, and this will be our third in this section of verses 8 through 15, where Paul gives his opening thanksgiving in prayer, we, we've seen that the gospel makes us servants. Servants. And we're going to continue our exploration of this today. First, though, I want to take advantage of the fact that today is Reformation Day to make something abundantly clear. So on this day, 504 years ago, a monk and scholar whom we know as Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And this was an action that he did in order to provoke discussion in the church of his day to bring about some kind of renewal. Of course, it led to something much bigger than he could have ever anticipated, the Reformation and the rediscovery of the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. In fact, one of Luther's theses said this, the church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say this to say at the heart of this biblical gospel, the gospel of God, is the reality that we need to keep abundantly clear in our minds that we, are in, we enter into the life of God by virtue of his grace and his grace alone, which is to say that there is nothing about our prior worth or value or lack of value that factors into the love of God expressed for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. He receives us and welcomes us. In fact, we read in Romans that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still rebelling and running the opposite direction, God laid down his life for us. Christ died for us. So I want us to remember and keep this straight. One of the great insights of the recovery of the biblical gospel in the Reformation was about this point, very, very much so, that the foundation of our life in Christ is not our being servants. That is rather the fruit of the foundation, which is the, uh, the love of God for which we are not worthy and which we could never deserve. So as we continue our exploration of the fact that we are called to be servants, that we are transformed by the gospel into servants, let's remember that we are first brought in by the love and warmth and grace of God, regardless of how much of a servant we are or are not. We need to keep that straight as we explore this together. So over the past two weeks, we've seen that we're servants of God. We're servants of the God who became our servant, paradoxically, right, in the cross, and that by his serving us, we have been empowered to become his servants and to make his will our own. And we're also servants of all, as we looked at last week. And all includes even our enemies. Everybody that we see, we're called to be a servant of. But today we want to come back to this theme one more time and look at the full breadth of verses 8 through 15, realizing that we are also servants of one another. Servants of one another. Actually, Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. He says... So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That is, we're servants of all. Let's do good to everyone. But then he says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's a kind of priority. Yes, we're to serve everyone. 
and especially those who are of the household of faith. That means above all, or most of all, or particularly, we have this special responsibility and obligation to serve brothers and sisters in the family of God. This is what it means to be transformed by the gospel. So in this opening Thanksgiving and prayer, verses 8 through 15, we see this call to mutual service quite clearly. There is a warmth and a love and a sense of mutuality expressed by the apostle in these words where we see that the gospel has made Paul a servant of the church in Rome, of the Christians there, and the gospel has made the Christians in Rome servants of Paul. And we're going to explore this in four ways and see how this is the case with the service of encouragement, of prayer, of strengthening through the gospel, and of meeting tangible needs. So first there is this service of encouragement. And this starts from the Roman Christians and goes to Paul. He says in verse 8, if you look with me at the text, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith or your faithfulness is proclaimed in all the world. Now that's hyperbole. By all the world, Paul really means the the churches throughout the Greco-Roman world where he has been ministering. Your faith has been proclaimed. Your faithfulness to Jesus has been proclaimed there. Uh, That is that we've heard about you. We've heard that you're clinging to Jesus in the midst of internal strife. There was never a perfect church, let's be clear. And in the midst of external pressures, you've been walking faithfully with Jesus and we've heard about it. And that's been a tremendous encouragement to us. Near near the end of the letter that he writes here in, in chapter 16, verse 19, Paul says, for your obedience is known to all. Your obedience is known to all. We've been encouraged. So let's pick up this point. Living faithfully to Jesus. Embodying in our lives and our community the obedience of faith. Is a genuine service of encouragement to the body of Christ. That is to say that we need your example of faithful living to Jesus. And we will benefit greatly by your act of service to us as you live faithfully. Think of Barnabas at the end of Acts chapter 4. He sells a field and brought the money that he had received from the proceeds of the field and laid it at the apostles' feet. And we read there that his name was Joseph, but he was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. His faithful example of generosity encouraged the earliest Christians. We need these kinds of examples. I know that many of you, I'm sure, have examples that you can think of in your lives of faithfulness to Jesus. I know one in my life through difficulty and hardship was my sister and her five children. As her husband, Brant, was diagnosed with mantle cell lymphoma in 2016 and died in 2019, we watched, we had an up close, uh, up front seat to their journey through this suffering. And I was so deeply encouraged by my brother-in-law's in my sister's faith through this trial. Depth of encouragement, actually, continue to be encouraged to this day and by their children. She wrote this after the cancer had come back in fall of 2018. We're genuinely heavy hearted as more upheaval seems to be headed our family's way this week. A friend texted me this verse this morning before I spoke with the doctor, be still and know that I am God. We are asking God for stilled strong faith to keep our eyes locked on him and our feet planted on his unwavering foundation. It is the only thing that doesn't seem to be shifting under the weight of our circumstances at the moment. Honestly, these waves around us feel huge and the storm extra dark today. 
Of course, our feelings are certainly valid, but we have learned that they cannot be trusted. They shift like sand. We do know, however, that God is with us wherever we go, a lamp unto our feet, even in the darkest of storms, and that he will give us the strength we do not possess for the unknown journey we face in the coming days. These are his promises. You can bet we are clinging to them today with all we've got. The faithfulness of brothers and sisters, not just in the flesh in this case for me, but brothers and sisters in the Lord is a tremendous encouragement that we need in a way that we serve the larger body. But then look at how it kind of goes in a circle because Paul says in verse 8, remember he hasn't met the Christians in Rome, but he says, look, we've heard about your faith. Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And so he's encouraging them with the fact that they have encouraged him by their example. Imagine how encouraging it is for them to hear the apostle. They'd heard of him, I'm sure, writing to them and saying, we've heard about your faith. It's proclaimed through all the world. Your example is encouraging the body of Christ. What an encouragement for them to be told that back by the apostle as well. When we were talking as a staff in early September at our fall kickoff lunch about the hope of being a place of encouragement for one another, I, I, I said, I think we need to repurpose the MBTA slogan, if you see something, say something. You know, they mean it because if you see something kind of off, make sure you, you say something for our safety. But I think we as a church should, should capture that, that statement and say, if you see something, if somebody is doing something wholesome and righteous and courageous and true and humble and full of the love of God, say something. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, he's encouraging them by saying, I've seen your faithfulness in Jesus. And you can believe that I told my sister that as well, that I was so encouraged by her and my brother-in-law's faith through their trial. Let's encourage each other in our lives together. Verse 12 actually continues this theme. Paul says, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith or faithfulness, both yours and mine. What has taken place from a distance, Paul says, when I come to you, I hope it will take place more and more as we are together, that we will encourage one another. So second, there is the service of prayer. Paul prays, or Paul mentions at the end of verse 9 and verse 10, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Do we pray for one another in the body of Christ? Prayer is our first action as those who have been conquered by the love of God. Prayer is a way that we say, we cannot do this, God, but you can. And a great expression of service in the Christian body is to pray, to pray for one another. Paul teaches us in Ephesians 6 to make supplication for all the saints, to pray at all times in the spirit. You know, occasionally we are privileged to get cards from former Park Streeters across the nation and the globe. And a couple of weeks ago, we got a card from a retired missionary whose name is Jackie Fowler. I'm sure some of you know her. I do not, but I was so blessed by her words that I wanted to share them with you. She said in her notes, she was commissioned more than 70 years ago as a missionary by Park Street Church. And she wrote us to tell us that she was praying every day for our upcoming global missions conference. She thanked us for at the church for being so faithful and supporting her over the years and for praying for her faithfully. And then she said this that really blew me away. She said, at my age, I can no longer be very active in missions work or other activities, but I can and do pray for several hours a day. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a way to serve the body of Christ? Doesn't that mean that our service of one another will never end? 
Jackie, well advanced in years, continues to serve the body of Christ on her knees, praying for us and for who knows how many others. We serve one another through the ministry of prayer as the people of God. Third, Paul serves them by strengthening them through the gospel. He says, look, I want to come to you, for I long to see you, verse 11, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, he doesn't specifically identify the spiritual gift that he wants to impart to them. And it's, there's some wrestling here because it's not clear. He, he writes later in chapter 12 about spiritual gifts. But it is pretty clear that what Paul is doing in the letter is what he would have been doing were he present. And here I follow Michael Byrd, a commentator on Romans, who says that we should really associate the gift that he imparts closely with what he's doing in the purpose of the letter itself. Which, what is he doing in the letter that he would have done if he had been there in person? He is expounding the gospel of Jesus, using the gifts that the Spirit had given to him as an apostle, one who would proclaim the gospel faithfully. He's expounding this gospel as he writes to the church. And then he's applying the gospel directly to their situation and to their areas of need. In fact, the whole argument of Romans is leading up to Paul's exhortations to the church there. Though he's heard about their faith throughout all the world, though he's been encouraged by their faithfulness and their example, they are not a perfect church. They have issues and problems. In fact, there's some struggling going on with unity in the church. Most likely, we think the, G the Gentile believers were having a hard time accepting the Jewish believers. And we read about this in chapters 14 and 15. And so Paul is expounding to them the gospel and then applying it to their particular need so that they might have a more deep and established witness to the gospel of Jesus in their lives. That they might be stronger. He says, I want to, to strengthen you. And that's what servants do. Servants want to make others strong, using their gifts to strengthen others. Two things to say about this. So he goes on to say in verses 13 and again in 15 and 13, he says, I don't want you to be aware. I've tried to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you. And then he says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The harvest or the fruit that Paul wants to reap among them is a strengthened and unified church family in Rome. That's what he wants. Now, two things to notice about this on this point of serving one another by strengthening each other through the gospel. The first is that preaching the gospel is not just something for outsiders. Do we catch that here? In fact, actually, every letter in the New Testament is an exposition of the gospel to the church, to address the needs of the church, to grow the church up to maturity in Christ. As we enter into relationships as we listen to one another and support one another and encourage one another, a primary dimension of what we are doing in our small groups, in our life together, is we are proclaiming the gospel to one another. And by the gospel, I, of course, mean that declaration that the crucified and risen Messiah is, in fact, the Lord of the whole world and Lord's rescue and save. And through him, God has brought genuine salvation and deliverance to his people. And this is to be declared among us as the body, through us to one another. The gospel is the means by which we deal with our ongoing divisions, our immaturities, our sins against one another, our unforgiveness, our doubts. We declare the gospel to the, into these situations. And that isn't just to say that God loves you in Christ even though you're unworthy, though of course this is deeply at the heart of what we mean when we say the good news. 
but it is that we are to address by, the, by virtue of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the ongoing areas of sin and shortcoming, our proclivity to gossip or to dominate or to be greedy and selfish or to avoid dealing with conflict in a healthy way. We are to address all of these things with the good news that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will, in fact, come again. So let that gospel seep into your heart more and more, brother and sister in Christ, and begin to respond to it more and more in a life that is holy and aligned with the sweet aroma of Christ in your life. So the gospel is to be preached in the church, and Paul is doing this as a way of serving the church. The second thing just to notice on this third point is that Paul is using his gifts to strengthen the body. And he uses the word here that he talks about elsewhere of, of spiritual gift. And these gifts have been given to strengthen the body of Christ, to serve the body of Christ. And here's what I want you to know. If you're sitting here this morning and you, you are a follower of Jesus, you have gifts. Some of you might be thinking, you know, there's not much that I can bring. My life's a mess. I don't really have a lot to offer at a church like this. And I want you to know that that's absolutely and utterly untrue. Every single one of you who has come into faith in Jesus has gifts given to you by the Spirit of God that God intends for you to deploy in our midst as a body that we might become stronger together. Paul is illustrating that, that element here, using his gift to strengthen the body. Fourth, then, and finally... Paul works to meet the tangible needs of those in the church. And admittedly, he doesn't say that here about his service of the church in Rome. But this is clearly a key central plank of what he sees as the call to serve the body of Christ. You remember when he meets the apostles in Galatians chapter 2, he says, the only thing they asked was that, they, that we remember the poor. The very thing, he says, that we were eager to do. Well, one of the things going on in our text is that there's clearly some reasons Paul has to explain why he hasn't visited the church in Rome yet. And he tells them why later in chapter 15. And it's because he's been seeking to serve the tangible needs of the church in Jerusalem. So this is the text in chapter 15, verse 23. He says, now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered it to them, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I don't know if you caught this, but this is, and maybe I shouldn't say this a week before our global missions conference, but Paul is delaying his goal of gospel evangelization, the evangelization of the world. In his case, he wants to go to Spain and preach the gospel so that he might attend to the tangible physical needs of the body of Christ in Jerusalem with the offering that he has been collecting from the churches 
in the Greco-Roman world. That's astonishing, actually. And there were no wire transfers, remember? He's carrying around bags of money, collecting them from church to church, risking, I'm sure, being, being robbed on, on, on his journeys to carry this money back to meet the needs of the saints. In Jerusalem, there had been a famine in 46 to 48 AD, and they're likely still suffering the results of that famine. And he's wanting to meet the needs. They're saying, we, the church in the Greco-Roman Empire, we see you, and we see your needs, and we want to meet those needs. And I'm putting my gospel expansion ministry on hold just to do this gospel work of serving you. The tangible needs of the body of Christ are a top priority in the apostles' ministry. And they are to be a top priority in our own ministry as well as we serve one another. He also seems to expect that they will serve him as well as he is serving the church in Jerusalem. I don't know if you caught it, but in verse 24 he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. I want to be practically helped on this journey by you. These are a top priority. So how does John write about this in his first epistle? He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, in action, and in truth. And of course, the earliest church in the book of Acts, at the end of Acts 2, at the end of Acts 4, they're meeting the needs of everyone they have around them. They're doing what Deuteronomy 15 commanded them to do. They're not closing their heart to their brother or sister in need. In fact, they're selling stuff that they have and giving the proceeds to those who are in need. They took this so seriously that by chapter 6, they had set up a daily distribution system of meeting the needs of the widows in their congregation, which now numbered in the thousands. And when there was ethnic conflict in that distribution process, they appointed seven spirit-filled men to serve those needs and ensure that that distribution was taking place. This was serious business to the church. The earliest defense, surviving defense of the Christian faith that we have is from an apologist in the mid-2nd century, Aristides of Athens. And he writes his defense of the Christian faith to the emperor. He addresses it to the emperor in Rome to explain the new and strange growth that is the Christian people in the Roman, the Roman Empire. And when he does so, he writes about the way in which they care for one another. They meet tangible needs remember he was writing in an age when charity for the poor was not in vogue it was not a understood value as it is to some degree in our day he was writing in an age when there was no welfare state no social security when there was no notion of universal human rights when the poor could easily easily be neglected and, and pushed off and this is what he says about the earliest believers in Athens and if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah. With much care. What is the precepts of our Messiah? A new commandment, he says, I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. When Aristides wants to tell the emperor about the Christian people. He lets it be known that they are known. 
by their radical deeds of service to one another. Isn't that encouraging? That our earliest forefathers and foremothers in the faith were known for these acts of tangible service. The gospel makes us servants of God, servants of all, and particularly servants of one another. So I want to just close with this. That means that the people in this room right now are brothers and sisters for whom Christ died, are people that we are called to radically and tangibly serve. And it means that their burdens and their needs and neediness, just like our burdens and our needs and neediness, have been completely and radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ such that they are no longer unwanted drains upon our daily lives and grinds and schedules. But they are now, in fact, the opportunities that God has given us to grow to deeper and fuller life in him. Is that how you view the needs of the person sitting next to you right now or 10 seats over from you right now? They are great opportunities given to us now to grow up into the fullness of the life that we've been given in Jesus. The gospel results in transformed lives Lives of people who are radically committed to being a servant of God, of all, and above all, of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for vanquishing our pride and ego and self-centeredness and selfishness, the reality of sin in our lives at the cross. We pray that you would send forth your spirit and great power upon us. That we, and I pray this specifically for Park Street Church, that we would be known as a church of servants. Who, like our Lord and King, put the towel around our waist and wash the feet of one another, the feet of all those that we encounter in this city. Because we are your servants. Thank you, O oh God, for the good news of the gospel. Thank you, O oh God, for setting us free. Thank you, God, for this community that serves each of us and that you've called us to serve. We love you and we praise you for your good and faithful work among us. In Jesus' name.